Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. You know, when it happened, I was ready to get on vacation. So at the time... I never went, and then I went a month after he died to actually see, you know, I was, so I was doing the story, yeah. and I was like, so what did really happen? And as I, you know, we were talking about, you always want to go back to the location mm-hmm. to really understand. Exactly, to understand. And then, you know, I was walking there, and I was like... How did he ever walk here by, you know, how did anybody ever think he was safe here? That was like, also for himself, you know, he was so experienced. And then... Because it was so routine, you mean, going on the telly yeah, and yeah, parking the car and... But, you know, if yeah. you're, I mean, you're going to see, you know, if you're on a most wanted list mm-hmm. and there's a realistic threat, you don't want to be there by yourself. And why was that? Was he just, did he feel... Yeah. A bit like the way we all feel? You kind of no, feel as if... No, I think he was also like a really stubborn... Right. You know, <laughs> I always think that, you know, people's strengths are also their weaknesses. And he was like really stubborn. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, he thought that he knew how something, how a story should be told, and he went for it. Yeah that kind of stubbornness. Yeah, 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 yeah. But that, it's also in some other ways, it's like he felt that, you know, he was in no danger. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs, and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. It's almost two years since the famous Dutch journalist Peter Ordevries was shot dead on an Amsterdam street in an assassination believed to have been ordered by Marengo suspect Ridwan Taghi. For decades, the 65-year-old TV star had been a voice of victims and a campaigner against criminals and their crimes. But when his killers came for him on a sunny July evening on one of the busiest streets in Amsterdam, they didn't care what he'd achieved. They were simply carrying out orders that he must die and sickeningly that a video of his last breath posted to social media. But how could 
such an event of narco-terrorism happen in a modern European city? And why did Peter de Vries feel so safe there, despite the threats to his life? Today, in my third dispatch from the Marengo trial, I'm joining my colleague Jan Mayas, chief reporter with NRC, as we walk to the scene of the de Vries death. He recalls his shock and terror at the news of his mentor's brutal murder, and he remembers the fear it instilled in a media already under threat. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Yeah, that's all what they all say, you know. So he had this tattoo on his leg, and it says, on bended knee, there's no way to be free. And it's actually a lyric from uh, Pearl Jam, from the singer of Pearl Jam. Um, And the thing was, he got it from his son. So his son listened to Pearl Jam, and then they both got it tattooed on their their leg. (laughs) Um, But that's really who he was. Yes. You know, he was this, like... um, God, what's a good way to phrase it? Courageous. He was, so he, in some ways he was courageous, he was fearless, but it, in, and in other ways that's also made him not see the dangers, I think. Uh, and, yeah. That really is the bottom line, isn't it? Is it yeah. stupidity? Yeah. Or is it courage? Nah, he, I mean, yeah, you know, he was not stupid. He was definitely not stupid. No, but well, why do so few people do what he does? Because they want to stay alive or because they see the fear or smell the danger, do you know? Yeah, but in some ways, you know, Peter de Vries was, in this country, was larger than life. Mm. You know, he was, you know, we always say, in this country, you always say, you have royalty. Yeah. You have business royalty. Freddie Heineke. Yeah, yeah. People like that. You have Johan Cruyff, football. And you have Peter de Vries. But he was in that category. Mm. The absolute... um, Untouchable, nearly. Yeah, in some ways, untouchable. And... Um, well, I suppose in every point, way untouchable until that moment yeah. when that line in the sand yeah. was crossed yeah. again. Yeah. And, it, and then if you think, you know, he, so he was in a new relationship and he was on his way to look at a house to buy with his new girlfriend. Mm. And, and yeah, I don't know, it's, yeah, it's really hard I, it's, I, to be honest, I never, I wouldn't dare to call him stupid mm-hmm. because he's too smart for that. Yeah, I know, but it's like, it's like that when people say to you incredulously, how do you do your job? And you go, mm, I don't know, just do it. And then you kind of, you want them to stop talking. Yeah. You want them to shut up. And then sometimes in those dark moments you go, is it because I'm so naive do you ever have that? Oh, uh, yeah, I do. But yeah. I'm scared shitless all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry, you know. Yeah. And I, I'm, it's not like I don't... I, I dare to ask questions. I, I go out and I have, like, meetings with people and afterwards I think, am I stupid or something? I should not have done this. Mm. But I'm aware of the risks. His death is so... 
so unnecessary. Yeah. You know, I mean, car accidents are terrible, heart attacks are terrible, and uh, people who don't know the traffic rules are terrible. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but this is like... Is that us or them? <laughs> no, them. Okay. They, they should have... But um, again, you know, we're almost there, and you just... If you see it and you think about it, it's like, this, he should have never been here by himself, unguarded. It's like... In that routine way, especially. In that routine way. Yeah. And, you know, he should have known better. Yeah. Uh, the police should have known better. His producers and people around him should have known better. And then, you know, if you ask his son, Royce, He says, yeah, but that's also who my dad was. So in, you know, you could also say, you know, to, to phrase it in a positive note, he completely died in character, you know, hmm. fearless. And if this was the way it was going to be, then it was going to be. I don't know if you should admire that or it should scare you to death. I have no idea. I should probably scare you to death. <laughs> okay. So this is the back of the studio. If we go to the square, you see the, f the windows of the studio um, in the front. So mm -hmm. when you look at the program where he was in, a lot of times you see the trams running and you see stuff running. Um, and then this was the back entrance and exit. And then... You know, he came out of here, and then he walked that way. Peter went on this program at RTL Boulevard, mm. on average, once a week, I would say. And uh, he had this, like, set run, so he would walk after the program. He would walk so from public, here isn't it? to his car. Yeah. And, and he was so well-known, so anyone sitting okay. along here would know, would they? Yeah. Yeah, and you know, the weird thing is, at one point, RTL said, you know, we don't feel comfortable with you walking here all the time, so why don't you just drop off your car in front of the studio, we'll park it, we'll bring yeah. it to the parking lot for you, we'll pick it up from the parking lot. And they had that arrangement, and at one point, his car was damaged. And that's like Peter de Vries. He's like really pissed off mm -hmm. about a scratch on his BMW or a dent or whatever it was. And he's like, after that happened, he didn't trust them with his car. So he decided, no, I'm not going to have it picked up and dropped off. I'm just going to drive my car to the parking and walk this, you know. It also shows you he was a really regular guy, you know. Mm -hmm. He didn't feel like, he didn't have the appeal that he you know had his car parked he was good enough to park himself you know but yeah so this is where he walked and then uh, there's I don't know if you've seen it but there is this police footage you know in his murder investigation where you actually see him walking and he is you know on his phone like sending messages or reading messages. And as I said, you know, his girlfriend later said that they were go he was going to come 
and they were going to look at a house together somewhere outside of Amsterdam. I don't know exactly where that they were thinking of buying or renting or whatever. And he was like, he seemed like totally relaxed. If you see those images, he's not worried about anything. It's like a kind of a car accident or something like, isn't it? It's like a, it's like something that you, is so unexpected and you'd wonder if you were under the sort of threat that he was. Would you not look over your shoulder? I don't know how I'd behave. I don't know how any of us would react. I mean, you know, what I've learned talking about security and safety, this is like a straight line from A to B. <laughs> and if you feel threatened, and if you think you're not safe, the last thing you should do is on a regular basis walk from A to B in a straight line. Because you're such an easy target. Yeah. And uh, I mean, we're coming up to, I think this is about where he got shot. So this is the area. Uh, and then over there, you know, you see two entrances of parking garages. Mm. And that's where mm. his car was parked. You know, you see the red brick I was talking about before. And then, yeah, this is it. Mm. And then this is, you know, that this is the exit. Mm. And then this is the other, right, the other right. side. Right. Oh my God. And I think his car was in here. Right. Oh. And, that was it uh, then. That was it. Yeah. So. Mm. And you know the 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 so the the weird thing about this happening here is that one of the people who works here a week before he got shot saw that he was being followed. I was approached by two guys from the Spiegel I know from previous stories we did together and uh, they said, geez, you know, we went out there and we heard the story about this employee of the parking garage. And they were just here as we are here now, but then two years ago. So a month, five weeks after it had happened. And they said, you know, this parking garage guy saw something weird the week before he got shot. And then what happened is he reported it to the security people of RTL Boulevard, the show that he was mm. on. They kicked it up to their bosses and to the police. And later on, it turned out that the police had taken it seriously and looked at the camera footage, but they could not see anything suspicious. So uh, they said, yeah, inconclusive. Peter himself said, you know, I am approached anytime I'm on the street. There's people following me. There's all kinds of crazies and non-crazies, which is true. I mean, the times that I have been walking around in public with him, there was always somebody pointing, oh, look, that's Peter de Vries, or asking him a question, asking for help. And he would be very courteous and say, you know, go to my website, send me a mail, and I'll answer you. So it was discarded. A week later... Mm. He was killed, you know, 10, 15 meters mm. away from this garage. Police went back to the footage. And then they saw what the parking garage employee was really talking about. 
So prosecutors now say that the guy who was driving the, the, the car that they fled with after the, uh, the shooting, he was, had been here the week before. What did they see? They, they saw him. They saw him walking, and he has. Yeah, you see, they see him walking behind, and he has this like two tattoos in his neck, mm. very like yeah, recognizable. Mm. And it's been disputed, so he says he wasn't here, but everything shows that he probably was here. And the district attorney says, you know, you made a trial run. You just were on a reconnaissance, on a reconnaissance to see, see to see the circumstances. The I saw the footage. Yeah. Is he close? It's just public. It's public. Does it get close to him? Uh, you, yeah, it's hard to see, but you know. Uh, 20, 30 meters behind it, you, you, there is footage of it and you can see it. Um, and then there's all kinds of other material like phone analysis mm -hmm. and you know, who was where, when, and prosecutors conclude the Polish guy who drove uh, the runaway car. He was here a week before. His lawyer says, no, it's not true. The judge's got a rule. Uh, and the thing is, you know, that employee of this garage, he was totally, like, he saw something, he thought it was suspicious, he reported it, mm -hmm. and that was way before he got killed. So he just saw something that he thought was weird and strange. Do you think the police looked at it properly? Yeah. You know, you're here now. You see this is a busy place. Mm. Uh, if you have, you know, somebody who says, you know, listen, I don't really take this seriously. Yeah, that's, it's a hard call. I feel, to be honest, I feel for the agent who looked at the images. Mm. Because whoever it is, he or she, has got to live with the fact that if, you know, looked better, did differently, mm -hmm. he maybe uh, could have prevented something. That's like a responsibility I would hate to live with. Uh. This was the place where he used to park his car and he walked at Tuesday evening, it was July 6th. It was a warm summer evening. Streets are full, people are busy. And uh, he just walked like he always did. And if you see the footage that was shown uh, at his trial, at the trial against the two suspects, uh, you see him totally relaxed. You know, he's wearing this creamy camel suit, dark shirt, walks out of the studio, and it's completely comfortable looking at the messages at his phone. And then maybe like 15, 20 meters from here, somebody pops up from behind and just shoots him. And he gets hit at least twice in the head, causing the wounds that in the end, you know, 10 days later causes his death. Like half an hour from then, there's movies on the internet coming up, social media coming up. And I remember seeing this photo uh, from up high, taken down. And you know, the pavement is red. It was almost new back then. And he has this bright, light suit. And he had this gray, John Travolta hair, you know. And 
you don't see him clearly, you don't see his wounds or his uh, clearly, but at the same time you see there's something wrong with him, you know. And that was, yeah, that was the first thing I saw. And then later on there is a video of people, you know, trying to take care of him, you know, wondering, you're seeing if he's still awake, if he can hear them. And then at one point you just see his hand fall and his head fall. And, yeah, being in the unfortunate position that I've seen, you know, more, of one, more than one of these kinds of movies, you know the chances are slim that somebody who is laying like that will survive it. Uh, and, yeah, ten days later he, he died. What was everybody thinking, you know? Peter de Vries was close to the deal witness in the Marengo trial. Two people had been killed already. He was on a hit list. That was public information. Everybody knew that. And anybody with some sense of how to protect yourself, how to be secure about yourself, knows if you're in a public space, everybody knows where you are and where you're going. You can't be predictable because, you know, there is no way to defend yourself. Even if there had been, you know, security people or cops with him, if they start shooting, it's very hard. So, I, I wrote a story about that the headline was, you know, that little trip from A to B here, you know. And we call it an ometje, you know, a little runaround. And I, 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 until this day, I still don't understand what was in his head because if there was anybody experienced with threats, it was him. Um, what, you know, the police were thinking, what the attorneys, district attorneys were thinking, what the city was thinking, you know, how could this have happened? And I think, you know, we know a lot more than, than back then, but it's still, yeah, it's very hard to explain how this could have happened. But, uh, yeah, the reason why we are here is because it did. I got like a first message from my bosses. You know, there's a rumor that Peter de Vries has been shot. Uh, I'm like, ah, that can't be true. And to be honest, you know, I was ready to getting on to go on vacation, so. But then, you know, I, I sent a few messages, called a few people, and, and within like 15, 20 minutes, uh, the tell signs were there that it was true. And then within like half an hour, I saw the first video. My first response was like, oh my God, it's true. And my second response was, as you do as a journalist, is you know, you close yourself off. So I told my wife and kids, I have to go to work. So I went upstairs and I opened my computer and started filing a story. And that story was online within 20 minutes, half hour, first take, second take, you know, that's how it goes nowadays. And I, you know, there's a one point informal confirmation of that it's true. I go on live TV I do a live interview on radio, and then there's a press conference announced at 11 or 11.30, so after I'm done filing my story, the newspaper is printed, 
um, I go to this press conference and, you know, the mayor is there and a few other, you know, the, the, the head of police and the, and the, the head of the, the, the prosecutor's office. And then my colleagues arranged the studio and they said, you know, let's do a podcast. So we started at 12 midnight, 12.30. And at one point, you know, I told him about the movies and the photos I saw. And and they and I knew Peter pretty well. I mean, we're not friends, so no birthdays or anything like that. But we had a good professional relationship. And um, I just started talking about those photos, and I still feel it right now. And you know, it's something that if you see somebody you've known laying on the ground like that, knowing that there's a big chance that. He will not survive this. And I try to explain what it does, you know, because sort of the professional and the personal merge together and we are trained to keep them separate. But then, you know, it's also the podcast. It's kind of personal. It was late. I was tired. Uh, and I just broke. I, I, I couldn't get control of my emotions. So, and for me, it was like, you know, I saw that image and it's like, you want to run away as fast as you can because you don't want to be anywhere near this. You don't want this to be part of your life. You don't want professionally and privately. And at the same time, it's my job to look at it and to report it in as humane way as possible, but also with some form of distance. And that's obviously very difficult at you know, when somebody, you know somebody's going to die that you have known. And also because of the person he was and, you know, he was, you know, if you say crime reporter in the Netherlands, you talk Peter de Vries, this guy won a Grammy Award. He was the highest category, well-known Dutch person. Um, and he was the type of journalist that I would not want to be, but he was at the same time, you know, if you would ask him something, he was trustworthy and loyal and professional and good about his job. And I was talking about it and I saw that picture in my head and I knew the chances are very slim that he is going to survive this. So I broke and when we we finished the recording, I said to my colleagues, I said, you know, you guys decide. If this is too much, please cut it out. If you think it's okay, then, you know, do whatever you think is, I'm going to go home and try to get some sleep. And then the next morning it was online. And, um, my name is Thomas Rupp. We weten dat er zorgen waren over zijn veiligheid. Er is gesproken over het feit dat hij op een dodenlijst zou staan van Taghi. Taghi heeft dat in een brief aan, een persoonlijke brief aan de Vries ontkend. Uh, uh, dat, dat druiste in tegen al alles waar ik als journalist van NRC voor sta. Namelijk, wij laten ons niet voorschrijven waar we over schrijven. Wij zijn onafhankelijk. Maar als ik er dan over na ga denken en als ik dan... Uh, dat filmpje zie van Peter. Wat gebeurt er dan? Dan denk ik, uh, dat ga ik niet doen. 
ik ga niet... Je moet hier niet voor willen wijken. Ja, anders, anders dan uh, laat je derde bepalen wat we doen en wat we niet doen. En hij ligt daar. En ik, het zou ontzettend laf zijn als wij nu zeggen... Verstop het mee. Je ziet die beelden. Jij bent bij zo'n persconferentie. Jij beleeft deze dag zo. En jij denkt, ik moet juist door. The, the frustrating part of something like this is, you know, you get all these responses because you're being emotional. And, you know, up to like the Secretary of Justice was sending me WhatsApp messages and saying, you know, I really admire your work and please keep going and don't take this personal. And like, you know, I've been talking about crime and about drug problems in the Netherlands. I wrote books about it. And now you're apping me? And you know, I, I know they mean well, so I don't I don't blame them or anything like that. But I found that a really weird experience, to be honest. You know, it's almost two years ago now, and I still feel this really weird not in my stomach, you know. Not the type of emotion that it was back then, but still, you know, if you see those images and if you think back about, you know the last contact you had with them or sometimes you go on your phone and you see that last WhatsApp message and that the final contact we had was not very uh, was not very positive and yeah it's just hard to imagine that he's not here anymore the way it seems now is it was not just Somebody ordered the killing of Peter Elvis, but somebody also decided that it needed to be filmed and it needed to be broadcasted and it needed to be in our face. And at the trial, there's now, you know, the shooter, the driver of the runaway car, uh, people who organized it, but also a number of people who were involved in filming uh, what happened here that night. When we saw the first images, nobody knew. But um, after a couple of days, one uh, internet site, weblog, saw this image and they thought, is there somebody following them with a camera? And it turned out they were right. So there was just, not only there was somebody who organized this brutal killing, but the same group of people also thought we have to film it and we have to put it online as soon as possible. And if you try to think of why somebody would do this, then there's only one viable reason, is to cause fear. Ever since, you know, the investigation has been going on now for almost two years and they have found a group of people that they are prosecuting for filming, uploading, and uh, you know, showing that video to the world. And they are being prosecuted for being a member of not just a criminal organization, but a terrorist criminal organization. So it's really, yeah, uh, what you would call narco-terror. Uh, and whether that's going to be proven and the judge is going to go along with that, we'll, that will be uh, a while before we know that. 
you know, the Marengo trial, where Peter was a part of because he was, you know, the advisor to the deal witness to Nabil Bey. We've had so many moments that we thought, you know, it's not going to get more crazy than this. And then this happened. So he not only got killed, but somebody decided, I want to show the world what we can do. So it's, yeah, it's so many things in one go, you know. It's like, it's like showing off your power and also telling the, word, the world that you still have that power. Right? And, you know, if, if you let it sink in, there's so much behind that notion of two guys or three guys filming something horrible like this. And then, you know, yeah, that it, it just shows you to what length people are willing to go in the criminal world that we live in. And it's, it's, yeah, it's hard to grasp. Maybe somebody said, you know, I want to have proof. But the thing is, you know, I'm, I'm online, but I'm not super connected. So I have colleagues, you know, if stuff like this happens, they always have the videos. And in this case, I had it like 20 minutes, half an hour. And later I thought, that's actually kind of weird because I never, you know, so fast. So who uploaded this? And, you know, before most people had realized, you know, our the main news broadcast on public television is at 8 o'clock. And they were still reporting rumors. Whereas on certain social media, whether it was Telegram or Signal or I don't know anymore, but the proof was out there. And within half an hour, uh, I've done a couple of murders, but most of the time I would be happy if I was at the crime scene within two hours. So the fact that it was online within half an hour you know, it was just very uncommon. You know, the impact of the, the murder of Peter was, it was... Sometimes it's a little bit hard to talk about because he was a journalist. But in this case, he was also... He took up the case of Nabil and his family. So he was not... You know, he took sides. He was part of a team, so to speak. So, I find, you know, he was a journalist, but was he killed because he was a journalist or was he killed because he was part of the team of Nabil? I tend to think the latter. And at the same time, the outcry was one of us was taken. And, you know, there was a wake the day before his burial and it was in Carré. It's a, a pretty famous theater in the old part of uh, the canal district of town. And there was a wake, and it was open for public. And again, it was a hot summer, and there was a blockbuster line. People were waiting for like an hour, hour and a half to pay their respects to him. Yeah, you know, when, uh, so when I first saw the images and the film, and I got it on my phone, and I was thinking to myself, do I want to look at this? And I put it away and I saw one photo and I knew I recognized him. I would recognize him uh, out of a thousand. And then, you know, the feeling that 
came up was like, on the one hand, you know, you, there is somebody lying there. And from what you see, you know that the chances are slim that he's going to survive. And I knew him. And if you see that, you just want to run away. Because you think, even though you don't want to, that could be me. You know, that's like the thought. That's, you know, a strange thought, but that's what you think. And you, you know, I don't want to be part of this. I don't. And at the same time, it's my job to look at it and to run towards it because I'm a reporter and I have to write about what happened. And that, that, that's sort of like this tension, this feeling that you have to do something that you don't want to do. The, the mixing of the personal and the professional is something that I always try to stay away with. You know, whatever I do in public, I'm a professional, I'm a reporter, I write, I check, I ask questions, and I file stories. But that was impossible because I knew him, so, and he had meant something to me, so this was personal. And that, you know, feeling up to this day is, like, difficult. Because, you know, today we went to court and we took out our shoes, took off our shoes. And the first day he was there as a witness, he had to take off his shoes. And he made this whole scene. You know, court was held up for an hour because you're like, I'm not, I'm not public, I'm not a writer, I'm the fucking witness. And he literally said that. You know, instead of you asking me to take off my shoes, you should have asked me if I wanted to park my car in the garage so I could enter in private because I'm a witness. I thought he had a point. You know, if you're there as a reporter and the security measures, but he was not there as a reporter. And at the same time, the funny part about Peter is he was all of that because he was so well known and he knew criminals so well that at one point he knew secrets. And if they came out, he was called in as a witness. So he was, you know, it sort of goes to show that he was larger than life in some ways. And, you know, that kind of, you know, that big story ended up, you know, in the street with that mixed feeling of being drawn towards it and being pushed away. And, you know, up to this day, I find it difficult to talk about it because if my wife sees this, it leads to uneasy questions. It sort of brought home the message. There was already two people died, but because he was so famous, it seems like that was the point that everybody realized what was really going on here. Everything about Taggy and his actions goes straight back to one thing, the cocaine that floods into Europe and dusts every corner of it in a blizzard of snow. So how does so much of Colombia's finest make its way through the vast ports? And how has Antwerp become such a significant entry point? I'm off to Belgium to meet another colleague, Joris van der Aa, a journalist from the Gazette van Antwerpen, who has been covering the crime beat for decades. He's going to show me just where the cocaine comes through. Thank you.
listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. Research assistant is Claude Amini. If you like this show and love true crime, leave us a review. Or why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary.